Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, the editor. Today we're going to talk about the experience of hearing voices, which for many people is synonymous with the idea of mental illness. But is this always the case? And for psychiatrists, how much does the actual experience of hearing voices correlate with what you've read in textbooks or given as an answer in a multiple-choice exam question? Might there be something that we're missing just because we're not looking for it? To answer some of these questions, I'm joined in the studio by two guests who are both authors of a study published in The Lancet Psychiatry and linked to this podcast. I wonder if you could tell the listeners a bit about yourselves. My name is Angela Woods. I am a senior lecturer in medical humanities at Durham University, and my background's actually in literary and cultural studies. I'm also the co-director of Hearing the Voice, which is a large interdisciplinary project looking at voice hearing, funded by a Wellcome Trust Strategic Award. At Durham on Hearing the Voice, we have 18 researchers working across a really wide range of disciplines, from cognitive neuroscience and theology through to literary studies and geography. And we work with people who hear voices, we work with clinicians, and we work with a wide range of academic collaborators, both in the UK and internationally. My name's Ben Alderson-Day. I'm a psychologist on the Hearing the Voice project. At the moment, my work is focusing on the relationship between inner speech and unusual experiences in everyday life. And I'm also interested in voice hearing in people who don't necessarily qualify for a psychiatric diagnosis. Angela, I wonder if I can ask how this project started and what got you interested in voice hearing? The first major medical humanities project that I became involved in was actually an earlier one entitled Emotional Experience in Depression and that was led by the philosopher Matthew Ratcliffe at Durham. This was a project working in the phenomenological tradition so we were interested in finding really rich, detailed accounts of what it is like to be depressed from a first-person perspective. Instead of relying just on published reports, so memoirs and autobiographies and clinical case studies, we took quite a radical step for a group of humanities researchers in designing a phenomenology questionnaire to really get to the heart of how people would describe depression in their own words. When it came to voice hearing, we thought a similar approach might work. There are actually few examples, um, empirical studies of the phenomenology of voice hearing, and there are relatively few qualitative analyses or narrative accounts. So we thought it was important to go back to first principles and to see what people really mean when they say that they hear voices. And to pick up on that point, it does seem odd in a way to be publishing a paper in this area in 2015. Voice hearing's been going on for a very long time. There already some very well-thumbed phenomenology textbooks like Sims, Symptoms in the Mind, where auditory hallucinations are described. They're also uh, described in psychiatric classification manuals like ICD and DSM. So why do the study and why do it now? Well, I think it's, it's interesting to raise the point about the kinds of descriptions that are available to clinicians of auditory hallucinations. Actually, if you go back to some of the foundational texts of modern psychiatry, for example, Emil Kraepelin's Clinical Psychiatry from the turn of the 20th century, What you see there are some quite extraordinarily rich accounts of people hearing voices. So some of Kraepelin's patients talk about resonant voices or voices which do not speak with words or voices that are somehow experienced as between hearing and foreboding. So you get these very rich definitions from that period which I think in some ways have been lost from kind of contemporary accounts of auditory hallucinations 
simply as acoustic experiences which occur in the absence of an appropriate external stimulus. And what we know about voices clinically and, and empirically at the moment comes from really a small handful of studies, uh, studies that are usually conducted in mental health settings um, and usually with patients with a diagnosis of schizophrenia or some other example of psychosis. The seminal paper that everybody tends to cite is Nani and David's study from 1996. Elsewhere, studies might use standardised scales or assessments such as the psychotic symptom rating scale or the positive and negative syndrome scale and they have questions about phenomenology as well possibly concerning the frequency of the voice the duration the location or its loudness now this approach isn't necessarily wrong but it raises two concerns the first concern is what about voices in other diagnoses we know that voice hearing occurs outside of schizophrenia so what are those voices like similarly voices in non-clinical settings what is it like to be a voice hearer if you don't qualify for a diagnosis? Relatedly, there's a measurement and methodological concern, and that is how much do we know about how these tools shape the way that people report their experience? If we're asking specifically about auditory properties straight up, do we get an auditory answer? If we ask about something else or ask in a more open way, do we unveil something more? And you decided to go online to ask these questions, to ask people what they experienced with a survey. Uh, there's a question I'm often asked as an editor, which is, do you publish papers with uh, this method or that method? And my answer is always the same, which is I look for a method that's appropriate to the question being asked. What precise question were you asking here, and what were the advantages and the disadvantages of the method that you used? Well, the title of our study was a very simple question, simply, what is it like to hear voices? And I guess the first thing to say about how we came to, to define the questions that ultimately composed the survey was to say that the people who hear voices play a really important part in the wider Hearing the Voice project and indeed in everything we do. So our research team generally and specifically for this study has lived experience of voice hearing as well as expertise in a really wide range of disciplines. And we think this is crucial to ensuring that we're asking the right kinds of questions. So the very first question, in the first substantive question in our, in our survey was, please try to describe your voice and or voice-like experiences. So we're trying here to be deliberately open-ended. We wanted people in the first instance to tell us what was important to them in their own words and to try as much as we could not to prejudge what counts as a voice or as an auditory hallucinations. What that's called in the phenomenological tradition is an attempt at bracketing one's assumptions about the nature of the experience. What we try to do by starting off in an open-ended way is establish an experience as a reference that you could refer back to with questions later on, questions that could be more specific. So, for example, we could say, in what way does your experience differ from the feeling of a thought or the way in which somebody might speak to you? in the room. We could also test out particular assumptions by asking more specific questions. For example, what kinds of emotions are associated with your voice hearing experience? How do you relate to that experience? There were three reasons that we chose to do an anonymous online survey really. The first was, was a, a reason of openness, of wanting anybody who considered themselves a voice hearer or had the experience of hearing voices to be able to participate in the study. That was related to a concern to ensure that we had a breadth of participants. So we wanted to engage a wide variety of people with respect to demographic as well as respect to diagnostic status. And finally, we wanted to give participants the freedom to participate in the study in the manner of their own choosing. So people could complete the survey at midnight if they wanted to, or take two hours to really craft their responses, or do it in the context of whatever other activities were unfolding. And in the paper, we do discuss some of the limitations of this approach. The obvious caveat here is we're not seeing these people face to face. This raises a sampling issue. 
uh, we're not necessarily reaching people who are acutely unwell, who aren't in a position to fill out an online survey, and a measurement issue. Uh, we have no way of verifying people's responses, although technically there is no way of verifying somebody's subjective phenomenology. Now, we could have included methods to verify this. Some studies sometimes use telephone assessments or interviews, proxy reports. They might invite people in after they've taken part in a questionnaire. But the danger of doing that is that you might turn people away at the first hurdle. It's quite possible that if we have included some sort of extra verification tool that we might not necessarily have got anywhere near the amount of data and the quality of data that we have in this paper. Can you tell me then how you went about getting the survey out there and, and what kind of response you got? Well, the survey was publicised on our project blog, hearingthevoice.org, and via various social media campaigns. In the US, um, it was also spread extensively via the collaboration of the Lived Experience Research Network, which is a prominent service user group. Altogether, we ended up with 153 participants who filled out the full survey and consented to their data being used. And that included a really wide range of diagnosis. It wasn't necessarily just people with schizophrenia. The most common diagnosis was schizoaffective disorder, followed by bipolar disorder, uh, there were quite substantial groups of people with a diagnosis of PTSD or dissociative identity disorder, um, and crucially, 26 people with no psychiatric diagnosis whatsoever. People varied in the degree to which they um, elaborated on some of the questions. Some people wrote only only a few hundred words, but some people wrote a few thousand words about their experiences. So we got some quite detailed responses, which um, was crucial to the analysis we were able to do. And I think it's also worth noting that quite a few people in the survey told us that they were really glad to have participated in the study because it actually gave them the opportunity to reflect on aspects of their experience they hadn't previously considered or they were weren't routinely asked in clinical settings, that it, it opened up a new way for them to engage with their own experiences. What were your main findings and, and were they quite what you expected? Well, some of our main findings didn't come as a surprise and wouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who works clinically or who works in hallucinations research. So people, when they hear voices, often have an, a large number of negative emotions associated with those voices, fear, shame, anger, distress of some kind. But that people also hear positive voices 30% of our sample reported that they heard very positive voices and a further 30% reported that they heard emotionally neutral or, or um, kind of ambivalent voices. We also know that people tend to hear more than one voice and more than one kind of voice. So only 7% of the people in our study heard a single voice. Everybody else reported some kind of multiple experience. And we know too that many people experience voices which have strong characterful qualities. So the voice has a distinct age and sex, has particular emotional intentions, in some cases has a, a very rich identity with a name and a, and a history and a whole series of um, kind of rich psychological properties. That being said, I think there are three things really that we weren't necessarily expecting from the data and maybe depart from prior phenomenological studies. The first, that while many voice-hearing experiences were described as being auditory in nature, a substantial minority included some very, very different experiences. For example, approximately 10% of respondents described their voices as being almost exclusively thought-like rather than necessarily containing any, or any auditory properties. A third of our sample described their voices being a mixture of auditory and thought-like properties. Around 
20% of our sample also described multi-sensory experiences being associated with their voices. The second thing that really did surprise us was that bodily experience were associated directly with voices in approximately two-thirds of participants in our study. So this was people who, when they heard a voice also and at the same time, had some kind of physical response, something like feeling punched in the stomach or feeling a tingling sensation or feeling a pressure in the head. And I think that really challenged us to think perhaps more broadly about the way in which um, clinically and also as researchers we tend to presuppose a complete distinction between so-called mental symptoms and things which might have a somatic or sensory component. And I think the final point about this sample is really that voice hearing experiences that were described in it are really highly heterogeneous. I've already mentioned the diagnostic spread, including people with no diagnosis at all. In our sample, the, the voices that are being described are not necessarily the commanding or dangerous voices that we perhaps stereotypically associate with schizophrenia. How does this add to our current knowledge about hearing voices, specifically for psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health nurses, other professionals who are listening to this podcast? Is there anything from your study that, that you think should change the questions they ask their patients and change the way that they think about them even? The first point is really a simple point and doubtless there are many clinicians and mental health professionals who already very much embrace that and that is not to make assumptions about people's experiences and particularly not assumptions that are based on people's diagnoses. So I guess the major take-home message is do ask people what their voices are like because they are very rich, very varied experiences that seem to, to differ quite markedly between people. As I've already said, 80% of the people in our study heard more than one voice. So I think it's really important as well for clinicians to, to explore that complexity to ensure that, that it's not just a focus on, on a single or dominant voice, even where that voice may be the most distressing. Really, uh, the emotions associated with voices and the ways of engaging and coping with voices were topics that people kept coming back to again and again in our sample. Things like the specific auditory properties of a voice, um, how loud it is, where it's coming from in the room, they don't necessarily seem to be as important to the voice hearers in this sample as they might seem to be in standardised assessments. So what's the next stage of your work? The paper that's forthcoming in The Lancet Psychiatry is really an aerial snapshot of the responses that we were able to gather through this questionnaire. And we have plans to make more detailed explorations of some of the specific questions and to do so using a variety of methods. This is a mixed method study, but the, the data that we've gathered is also amenable to, to kind of richer, perhaps phenomenological and philosophical inquiries. So one of our co-authors, Nev Jones, for example, is really interested in, in doing some very precise analysis of the differences and perhaps similarities between more auditory and more thought-like voices, really trying to get to the heart of the different acoustic properties and different thought-like properties that people describe in their experience. And another prominent feature of our data and uh, from prior phenomenological surveys is the presence of characterful voices with distinct and particular personalities. Our wider team at Durham are keen to explore the extent to which certain voices seem to have their own social presence or agency and to really look at that topic in a bit more depth because it's not something that we understand very well. If we knew how those sorts of things worked, it might tell us more about how voices develop over time and how some people come to interact with them almost as if they were people. Angela and Ben's paper is available to read online and I'm sure I'm not alone in looking forward to learning more from this project as it develops. So many thanks Angela and Ben for coming in to speak to us today and thanks also to you the listener for downloading this podcast. I hope that you'll join The Lancet Psychiatry again next time but for now goodbye.